Blood has a voice. That is the title of a book written by one of South Africa's top forensic pathologists, Dr. Estelle van Staden. She is with us now. Welcome, doctor. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks for, thanks for having me. And she's going to speak to Biz News about how the dead speak to her. Yes. She's often the last voice of a deceased person. Please tell us, for instance, how a person who is found dead from an apparent hanging can tell you that he or she was murdered. It's a very good question, Chris. It's something that I re uh, speak a little bit about in the book as well. Um, it's actually quite a difficult thing. Most people are not able to hang somebody else who has already died because if you want to basically frame a, a death as a, a suicide whilst it's actually a murder, that person needs to be dead by the time you hang them or you need to physically hang them. Now, it's very difficult to lift a person up to attain that hanging stance um, where the person is alive because they're going to fight you. So that person would either have to be dead or they would actually have to be incapacitated to such an extent that they cannot um, offer any resistance. So what we would look for is any defensive type of injuries, um, the position of the ligature around the, the neck. I obviously don't want to give anybody any, any ideas. Um, the position of the ligature around the neck, um, any additional findings such as is there evidence of, for example, a head injury that would incapacitate a person to such an extent that they would not be able to defend themselves if they were to be hanged? Um, also, if there's any indication that this person has been drugged, either by alcohol or any other types of drugs, so that they cannot offer resistance, that's also a very good idea. And then what's very important, and unfortunately we are not often called to the scene, one needs to actually look at the scene of death to make sure that it makes sense what we are finding in terms of the autopsy versus where the, and how the deceased person was found. Um, even if a person is dead already and is then strung up, one would still expect injuries on the body, purely for the fact that it's very difficult for one person to lift another person, even if it's light person that weighs 40 or 50 or 70 kilograms, it's very difficult to actually physically and mechanically do that. So we would actually look for additional injuries on the body that's not in keeping with hanging. Can you give us an example of a case where uh, a person was thought to have ha hanged herself but was in fact hung by her killer? Well, the most recent case that's come to mind is the Jason Ruerda case. And um, in fact, in his case, he has appealed his conviction and sentencing. It went all the way, if I'm not mistaken, to the, the, the Court of Appeals. And um, that conviction was actually upheld. So he was convicted of his wife's murder, his wife Susan's murder at the, um, the Speed Wine Farm a few years ago. And in that case, it was a staged hanging where, in fact, she was murdered before. Now, if a person is found with a gunshot wound and gunshot residue on his hand, would that automatically be accepted as a suicide or not? I would hope that it's not immediately accepted or automatically accepted, but obviously depends on the investigation that's already starting at the scene again. So, you know, as you can hear, I'm quite 
um, adamant that forensic pathologists be called to the scenes of death or scenes of crime, depending on the situation, because there's a lot of information that we can already share with the police at that stage and that they can share with us so that we can exchange information right from the start in order to um, further the investigation right from the start. But that basically falls under the investigation part of the uh, side of things. So the police would actually have to investigate further than just taking it at face value. And I think that's something that's very important in forensic pathology and, in fact, in any murder investigation, where you simply cannot assume that what you are seeing is exactly what is there. Um, It would actually be plausible for somebody to hold somebody else's, the victim's hand, and force them to shoot themselves, which would then become a murder. And there you would expect gunshot residue on the hands. You would expect the typical findings of a suicide, such as a contact range um, gunshot wound or a very close range range gunshot wound, where it might not be exactly what it seems. So there one would also have to look for additional um, information. And then the the investigation goes further than that. You know, was there anybody that that would have benefited from this person's death? Are there any... um, what you complementary information that one could glean from not only the scene but a wider investigation. And that's why it's so important that investigating officers and SAPs are invested and, and actually do these investigations and don't simply take something at face value. Now, what would be the most important indicators to you that you are dealing, before you start working on the body, that you are dealing with a crime of passion instead of a crime of opportunity or a crime of premeditation? Um, I don't want to always start with the problems that we have, but unfortunately, um, when there's a certain form, an SAP-180 form that accompanies anybody to the mortuary, and that enables us legally to do the post-mortem examination, it's also supposed to convey a lot of information, such as the name, the race, the gender, whatever the case may be of the deceased. Unfortunately, it's very poorly filled out in Johannesburg in any in any case, and we sometimes get just get information such as deceased was found dead in the felt. Um, I've had cases, and I've said it a number of times recently, where the sex, the age, the race of the deceased was marked as not applicable, which is absolutely shocking. Um, And sometimes I would get a case that would simply say deceased was shot. And I remember a case recently, and the deceased was shot something like 26 times. So, I mean, that is not simply somebody that was shot. That implies that there's something more to this. Um, talking about crimes of passion moves into the realm of forensic psychology. Um, but what one would expect to find would be a, a relationship between the perpetrator and the victim, most probably. And what they say is uh, associated with that is some, something which we call overkill. Now, um, interestingly enough, one of my honours students, Ms. Shamal Moss, is currently doing her honours project on can we define overkill because overkill is something which is bandied about quite a lot in, in literature, but there's no real cutoff point to say, well, if somebody was stabbed so many times or if um, somebody was shot so many times, that is the definition of overkill. Um, and she actually investigated that and looked at the number of gunshot wounds that we see as a matter of routine in Johannesburg, and then looked at the outliers, which would then define something known as overkill, which I thought was very interesting research. But if we look at um, at overkill, that's one of the main hallmarks of some somebody that might have been killed as a 
crime of passion, which, as you know, is not a defense. Um, it's not a valid defense in South Africa, although it is in some other countries. So that's the main thing. If we know that we, you know, that there's a relationship between the perpetrator and the victim, usually often an intimate partner type of relationship, and then the amount of wounds, and um, that is very important in terms of, um, you know, that it was possibly a crime of passion, and that there wasn't any um, premeditation going into it. Where the crime is usually more. I want to say more sterile, you know, that would be somebody that was shot once or shot from a distance. That would imply to me, you know, it's a robbery gone wrong or it's a housebreaking that, that, that turned out badly. How many autopsies have you conducted so far? Um, I've actually stopped counting, funny enough, um, that I needed to, when I wrote the book, I needed to give them a figure. And um, I can actually tell you this, this is a bit funny. Well, for me it is. When we did the TV series Autopsy, we were shooting the kind of like the trailer and we were just, you know, talking, talking, talking. And I said, well, I've done 5,000 postmortems and I knew I had, but I hadn't recently counted. So that is what was used in the trailer of the first one. And then right after that, the book came about and I realized, well, maybe I need to start. And I'm actually usually very precise. I thought, well, maybe let me just check, is it just 5,000? And it actually gone not in that short period, but I had actually by that stage done more than 7,000 postmortems. Um, and I've actually decided to stop counting now because at the end of the day, even though I've done that many, I think what's more important is were they done well? Are these 7,000 reliable postmortem examinations? There is a lot of people that's done a lot of postmortem examinations. For me, it's important to say I've done 7,000, I've done them well. So, um, yeah. At the moment, it's it's standing at seven thousand. I don't know if I've got the the nerve to go count again, but it's you know it's obviously going up. Talking about being precise, your testimony in court could mean the difference between a guilty verdict and an acquittal. Is there a case that stands out for you in that respect, Chris? Yes, it's actually the most harrowing case I think I've ever been involved in. It is a very sad story about a little girl. Um, it's one of the cases that I discuss in the book, and I think the reason why I do discuss it in the book is because of the emotional impact that it it has had on me and on everybody involved. Um, and it was actually, and I don't want to give the story away, but it was a little girl that was found dead in the room where she was staying with her mother. And she was rushed to a hospital where she was then declared dead. And when I examined her, she had been raped and murdered. And, you know... As I sit here, I actually get goosebumps because I remember the person that was eventually arrested, and this is the most I'm going to say about him, actually immediately asked, who spilled the beans? Um, he, he needs to get back at that person. you know. And there was such an evil um, presence surrounding all of that. you know. It was just such a, an absolutely shocking and turn out to this case. And um, there were issues that then had to be specifically elucidated in court, which is why I testified. And I think that's a case that very clearly demonstrates how important it is for us to, to, to be able not only to record findings very exactly, but also in how we convey it in a court. Because it's all good and well, you're a good forensic pathologist, technically you're skilled, you know the work. At the end of the day, if you cannot convey that to the judge or the um magistrate, whoever the, the, the presiding officer might be, you're actually worth nothing because, you know, we need to ensure that medical terms and medical terminology and specific phrases are um, 
of was reported on in such a manner that somebody that's not medically trained can understand what we are saying and that they can interpret that correctly. And that's actually the function of the forensic pathologist to be able to explain medical findings to lay people in terms of medicine, because I mean, obviously judges are not lay people, but in terms of medicine, they are. That's what we need to do. We need to assist the court to interpret medical findings. And in that case, it was of utmost important. Otherwise, this guy might have walked. And what was uh, the sentence he got? Can you recall? Uh, he got life sentences. He did get life sentences, yes. Um, I think what was very important in that case as well, and I think that's always of importance, it wasn't me. There was a team of us. There was an excellent police investigating officer, um, Lieutenant Colonel Joyce Budelezi. Um, The advocate that was prosecuting was Advocate Trulene Barnard that also prosecuted Gerard Janssen van Vieren, um, I think last year for the murder of his ex-girlfriend, Andrea Fenter, that was killed in Joburg. He was the guy that fled to Brazil. So Professor Gerard Labiskagny testified in the trial. So there was a lot of involvement of very professional and dedicated people. And I think that's important. You know, once you get that buy-in, um, that's when you get a good sentence. It must be an incredible feeling to get justice for a murder victim that way. It is. I think that's what drives me. Um, two things. The one thing is the justice. And the other thing is to be able to give families answers. It's horrible answers sometimes, but at least somebody, they know that somebody with has looked at their deceased loved one with care and attention and they can answer the questions. I mean, I always say the worst has already happened. Um, and I suppose that's how I can justify doing a post-mortem examination and physically, which is basically a very destructive process if you think about the fact that we're opening all these body cavities and looking at everything. But at the end of the day, I can answer these questions. Now, to a certain extent, I think it helps with um, with closure. Now, you've had many famous people in South Africa on, on your table, but I would imagine that, that every person at, gets treated in exactly the same way by you. Is I there find a case that, uh, sorry, of a non-famous person that, that, that you will never forget? Yes, there is. To me, everybody that comes across my table... Um, is important because it's always somebody's loved one. It's it's nobody, it doesn't make a difference whether this was a famous person or whether it was just the person next to the side of the road. That person was loved by somebody and it's always somebody's loved one. So for me, it doesn't make a difference. And to their families, whoever it might be, their death is a tragedy. And it's not more tragic because it's somebody famous. Um there's a very sad case which happened in Rhodes Park. It's actually one of the cases we covered, funny enough, in, in autopsy, in autopsy in the first series. Um, it was uh, two couples, two gents and two ladies. They, As far as I know, they were married or at least in relationships. And I was, when I looked at the bodies, they were so neatly dressed. And I thought, you know, they actually came from court, uh, from, from, from church. It was a Sunday morning and they went strolling through a park. And they were overtaken, overwhelmed by um, a gang of men who then tied the women up, tied the men up, threw them, there's a, there's a lake in the area, it's called Rhodes Park in Johannesburg, threw the men into the lake, um, having been, you know, unable to swim or tied up, and raped and sexually assaulted the women. And in the trial, which, funny enough, we didn't, not, not, neither of the pathologists testified in. Um, 
there was a police diver that said even somebody that was able to swim well would have probably drowned in that dam because of all the debris and all the plant matter and whatnot, I suppose. And the men could hear the wives being raped and assaulted, whilst the women could hear their men drowning. And it was just, there was a sense of evil that I don't think has left anybody that worked on this case untouched. It was an amazing investigating officer, Bruce van der Scaife, that worked on this case. He went above and beyond in order to to, to fetch the ladies, take them to court, to make sure that they get psychological support, to really go out of his way, not just for justice, but for them to be treated well and, you know, for the for the memories of the victims to be honoured. I don't think anybody was left un- untouched. Anybody that had worked on that particular case was uh, left untouched by it. And it's something I think that will remain with me for the rest of, the, of my life. Well, I think any person in this country or anywhere in the world who is unfortunate enough to die unnaturally would hope to have a forensic pathologist like yourself. But that may not uh, be the case because how many of you are there in South Africa? Thank you. That's a lovely compliment. Thank you so much. At any given time, there's only about 60 to 70 forensic pathologists, qualified specialist forensic pathologists in the country. Um, we are really quite under, well, I mean, I mean, you can imagine there's just too few of us. A lot of the forensic work is being done by forensic medical officers who are doctors that then just does, does a diploma through the colleges of medicine, which is where we also specialize. So um, they are doing very valuable, valuable work, but they simply are not specialists. So you cannot expect the same level from them. And you know, unfortunately, we are bleeding forensic pathologists. As soon as we qualify them, they either leave and work in private, in private other capacities, usually not as pathologists anymore, or they leave the country. And if one is, you know, if you just think about it on the cerebral level, um, you've studied six years doing medicine, you've studied at least three, you've done at least an additional two years now, three years in terms of um, community service and internship. And then you've studied another four years. So that gives you, you know, 12, 13 years. And, um, sorry, and our salaries, even if we work for the state, and I mean, we do earn good salaries in state. I'm not full-time in state anymore. I do private work as well. But it simply cannot compare with what some of the other doctors in private practice are earning. And the other thing is you are going to work in a mortuary. And for me, I love what I do. For me, it's an absolute passion. So that, for me, is not something that puts me off. But I don't think you must do forensic pathology if that is not what you really, really love to do. And if you look at some of this, if you just look at the new wonderful Joburg um, Surgical Hospital, who wouldn't want to work in a lovely place like that and earn a massive salary? So I do think um, financially the pull is not there towards forensic pathology. And like I say, the circumstances in which we work is definitely not ideal. Now, if a family member has somebody who has died in unnatural or mysterious circumstances and they are concerned about getting a quality post-mortem, what advice can you give them? Look, um, there are very committed forensic pathologists doing their work and that does it with dedication and with care. But if the family still feels that they would have rather have somebody overseeing it, they are entitled to have a second pathologist attend the post-mortem what we call a watching brief, 
so they employ uh, somebody like myself or some of the doctors are simply doing private um, forensic pathology and then have somebody stand by whilst the first autopsy is being conducted and that second pathologist compiles their own report makes their own findings and that can be handed to the family immediately because at the end of the day in terms of the law that post-mortem examination still needs to be conducted by a state facility in one of our mortuaries by one of the state pathologists that's how the law works but you are entitled to have somebody else attend and then report back to the family immediately and that's what I would recommend. Thank you. That was Dr. Estelle van Staden, top South African forensic pathologist, speaking to Biz News about her book, Blood Has a Voice, Stories from the Autopsy Table. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you very much for having me, Chris. Have a lovely day.